Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming tonight. Uh, tonight, we're going to continue our study of Created to Draw Near. And uh, before we launch into that, let's just have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time of study tonight. Father of grace, we thank you that we can come uh, into your presence tonight with your people. And we thank you for the love that you have shown to us that we do not deserve. Lord, we are thankful for this study that reminds us that we are called to be a royal priesthood and that you have made us to draw near to you and you have redeemed us to draw near to you. Father, I pray that you would bless the study, help us to uh, receive insights from your word that would help us to grow in our relationship with you. And Father, I pray that uh, our time of prayer uh, later on would be uh, in accordance with your will and uh, with the purpose of seeking your glory. And so, Father, may your blessings be on this time. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight we're looking at chapters 4 and 5 of Created to Draw Near. And chapter 4 moves us a little bit forward in the Genesis story. Uh, really, the, the first part of the book is centered in the Garden of Eden. And he's taking us from the very beginning, the, the original purposes of God in creating humanity and in creating us to be his image bearers and to be in relationship with him. And then how that theme has unfolded throughout scripture. And so tonight we're looking at um, the time of temptation and the time in which God gives Adam and Eve a command uh, to uh, not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then also in chapter five, the, the tempter who comes in to, to draw them away from the Lord's will and draw them away from God, draw them away from the nearness, the relationship that God created them for. And so in chapter four, discern right from wrong. He talks about two trees and the two paths that those two trees represent. And so in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, we have two famous trees. We have the tree of life, and then we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord gives a specific command to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, in verse 17, when he tells them that you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so God gave them a very specific command. It was clear, wasn't it? It wasn't, in terms of understanding, it wasn't a difficult command. Uh, really, in terms of performance, it really wasn't a difficult command. Uh, it was a quite a simple command, uh, but in that command, there was a test, wasn't there? There was a choice of which path they would walk down. And he says in the chapter that this ability that we have to discern right from wrong, this, this moral sense, this moral discernment ability that we have is a part of us being fully human. It's a part of how, how God made us. And he says to be fully human, which means to be close to the Lord, we must know that there are two paths. And those two paths have two very different outcomes, don't they? And so two paths. He says, um, the path that is with God and to God is life and honor. It says yes 
with his yes, that is God's yes, and it says no with his no. But the path that leads away from God can feel like pleasure for a moment, but it goes headlong into death. It says yes to his no and no to his yes. It gets completely upside down, doesn't it? And so he says uh, in the chapter that moral discernment is a premier feature of our humanity. Obedience, knowing right from wrong. These things are essential for a fruitful and good life to those who are replicas of the heavenly God on earth. And by that last phrase, he's referring to the fact that we are image bearers of God. That God made us in some sense, in a finite way, uh, to be modeled after him, imaged after him. And this sense that we have of moral discernment is unique to image bearers of God, isn't it? Animals don't have this sense of morality. Inanimate objects certainly don't have this sense of morality. We, as God's image bearers, human beings, are the only ones who have this capability of moral discernment. And he's arguing in this chapter that that quality, that aspect of moral discernment, especially when we choose the right that is modeled after God and his wisdom, that is what enables us to be able to draw near to a a personal holy God. And so God made us with this ability to have moral discernment, and that's a part of our ability to relate to him and to draw near to him. And so moral discernment is a part of being truly human. He talks about the image of God in the chapter and about how really we are to imitate God in what we do. So he says, when God says no, we're supposed to imitate him and say no. We're supposed to follow him and pattern our lives after him. And so we are made in the image of God and made to pattern our lives after his character and after his commands. And he also talks about the fact that moral discernment is not only a part of who we are as true humanity, but it's also really essential to all relationships. The ability to distinguish between right and wrong, between one and the other, the good way, the bad way, that which is wise, that which is foolish, he says is a part of every relationship. And he talks about human relationships and how uh, if we, in a human relationship, speak the truth to that person, we care for that person, we love that person, we have the best interests of that other person in our own hearts, that relationship grows, doesn't it? That relationship grows, it flourishes. But if we violate some of those inherent principles or rules of relationships, if we start to talk bad about this person behind their backs, if we lie to this person, if we are only selfish and don't have their best interests in mind, but only our own, that relationship starts to break down, doesn't it? And so there are rules, if you will, in all relationships. An ability to discern between right and wrong, he says, is necessary for every relationship on a human level, but also on a divine level between God and man. So he says uh, in this particular case in Genesis chapter two, when the Lord said to Adam, you may eat of any tree of the garden. 
but of this one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat of it. If you do, you will surely die. And sometimes we might think, why, why that test? What, what is significant about that test? It doesn't seem like all that big of a deal, right? I mean, this, God didn't say to Adam, don't kill your wife, right? That's not the command he gave Adam. The command he gave Adam was, don't eat this fruit. And we think, why? What's the significance of that? Why is that so important? And he says, one of the things about this particular command, this particular test, is that it requires simple trust. It requires simple faith and obedience, even if Adam did not know the full reason why God gave that specific command. And he goes on and he says in this portion of the chapter that if we obey such tests because we understand them and agree with God's rationale, then we might be trusting in our own understanding instead of trusting God. In other words, we shouldn't just obey when we understand exactly why God's doing what he's doing. We should obey whenever God says what he says, regardless of whether we understand or not. And that's what he's saying in this portion of, of Genesis 2. God gave him this test. Even if Adam didn't fully comprehend what the significance of it was, his responsibility was clear, and that was to simply obey. And we can think of this on a parent-child relationship, can't we? That especially for a younger child who doesn't have understanding and hasn't grown to maturity yet, we give them all kinds of instructions and commands that they can't understand, right? They can't fully understand those. They, they don't understand the rationale behind them. But we still are seeking to instill in them a submission to authority, right? A, a submission to authority, a willingness to obey, and along with that willingness to obey, a sense of trust that we are looking out for their well-being, that we're looking out for their good. And so when we tell a young child, don't touch that hot stove, they may not understand why we're giving them that, but they need to trust us and they need to obey because we have their best interests in mind, right? Well, God has humanity's best interests in mind. All of his commands have humanity's best interests in mind because all of the things that God tells us are really ways of us experiencing full humanity, are the way that he designed for us to be in relationship with him as his image bearers. And so God gave Adam this test simply for him to trust and obey. He says, much better is the opportunity to know clearly what God says and follow him, even when we don't fully understand his reasons. And he gives the analogy in our modern context of sexual relations, right? Because sexual ethics is being questioned by all kinds of people in the world and not just unbelievers, but even Christians. Even people who claim to be Christians and follow the Lord Jesus ask the question, why do I have to follow this command? And what he's saying in the chapter is, you may not fully understand all of the reasons, 
But God has given you this instruction and a part of being near him, a part of drawing close to God is obeying his instructions even if you don't fully understand. Well, from a full biblical theology and worldview, we understand that there's a reason why God has set boundaries around sexual relations. And it's because of the sanctity of marriage, isn't it? It's the sanctity of marriage, which also begins in Genesis chapter two. The sanctity of marriage, the husband, the wife relationship is to be holy. It is to be set apart each for the other. And that anything outside of that is a distortion of God's original creation intent. And so we have to learn to obey God. And as we learn to obey God and we exercise this moral discernment and we choose the right, he says, we're growing nearer God and fulfilling this purpose for which he made us to be in relationship with him. And so to be human, God's priest is to discern what is best and what is deadly. A priest, if you think about it from the Old Testament perspective, a Levitical priest, they were supposed to be doing what was right, weren't they? A priest of God was supposed to set, was supposed to teach what was right, and they were supposed to set an example of what was right. And so a part of being a priest of God is knowing the right and doing the right and setting an example to others of what is right. And so that is to be able to discern what is best and what is deadly. To be human is to act on that discernment and obey. This demands confidence in what God says and the humility to place his words above our own understanding and our own desires. It demands faithful love. And that's the tough part for a lot of us because we're stubborn, isn't it? That we want to, we want to do what we think is best, but simple obedience is doing what God thinks is best. It demands our loyalty and our humility. And then he says also to be human is to teach and encourage others in their discernment. And so just as priests were to draw near to God, they were also to help others draw near to God. And so we are to exercise moral discernment in drawing near to God and help others exercise moral discernment in drawing near to God. That's a part of our our priestly role. Then in chapter five, he moves us just a little bit forward into uh, chapter three, where we start to see uh, the serpent, an intruder, he says, come into the garden. And he begins this chapter by talking about Adam's responsibility to keep watch. And he says that a part part of God's task that he gave to Adam from the beginning in watching over and caring for the garden was also to be a protector of the garden. And he says that, that with this keeping watch, Adam and Eve weren't fully fulfilling their responsibility to keep watch over and to care for the garden because they let down their guard and they let in the serpent, the deceiver. And he makes the statement that the world has been filled with danger from the beginning. This is still before the fall, right? This is still before the fall. And in Genesis 3, 1, when this scene starts, Adam and Eve are still innocent. They're still holy, but there's danger lurking about, isn't there? There's a tempter, there's a deceiver. 
And so he makes the statement that everyday life was not intended for our relaxation and entertainment. God made us from the very beginning to be active in the world, to be working, caring for the garden. Uh, Work, activity, is not a part of the fall. Hate to break the news to you. Some people think uh, work was a part of the fall. If it wasn't for sin, I wouldn't have to work. No, if it wasn't for sin, your work would be more enjoyable. But work was there from the beginning. And God gave Adam the task of caring for and watching over the garden and protecting it, caring for it, to be active, involved in that, uh, not just to sit around and do nothing. Part of being human and living out what God has for us is to be actively involved in his world and um, subduing it, bringing under uh, submission as an image bearer. And so a part of Adam's role to keep and care for the garden was to protect it from danger. And he suggests that Adam uh, let down his guard on that responsibility and let in an intruder into the garden. And so in the garden, Satan, as the serpent, encountered a spiritually drowsy and unprepared humanity. Why why is he uh, teaching us this? Why is he showing us this? Well, a part of the role of being a priest who is near God is to be on guard and to have discernment and to be aware of the dangers and the schemes that are seeking to bring God's people down. And Adam let down his guard in the garden. Genesis 3.1, we see the serpent come into the garden Verse 1 says that he was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And what we have here is what he describes as how Satan works, his schemes. And a part of Satan's scheme is to get us to think that God is not good starts to create doubt about the goodness of God in Eve's mind. That's all he wants to do in Genesis 3.1 when he asks this question is he wants to plant just a little seed of doubt, of uncertainty in Eve's mind about whether or not God has truly been good and looked out for their best interests. And It's really, I mean, it's very subtle, isn't it? What Satan does here, what the serpent does. What God had given them everything in the garden, hadn't he? There were no limits to what they could enjoy in the garden except this one tree. God said of any tree in the garden, you may freely eat, fully open to you. And so their provision was bountiful beyond what we could comprehend. But what did the serpent do? And he still does the same thing to us today. He gets us to focus on the one thing where God says no, right? He gets your attention off of all of the the goodness of God. And he gets your focus on one little area where God says, no, you may not. And in this little seed of doubt, he wants Eve and Adam to start to question Maybe God's being a little too hard on us. 
Maybe God's holding back. Maybe God's holding something back from us that would be good for us, that we deserve. And so the serpent is deceiving them by creating doubt. And the serpent massively overstated the original prohibition as a way to entice just the smallest movement in the human's position, he says. He just wants just a little bit of movement, a little bit of doubt, a little bit of questioning. And so Satan starts to tempt us by saying, look at all these barriers God puts up. Look at all these fences. Look at all these don'ts that God puts up. He, he doesn't really care about your well-being, your happiness. That's what the serpent is doing to Eve. And so the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. A little bit of extra that she threw in there, isn't there? God said, don't eat it. The little bit of doubt, the little bit of questioning that the serpent put in her mind, she now adds to a little bit of that by saying, God also said, don't touch it. And so the serpent tried to make her look at the fences that God put up. And that gets Eve to add another layer to the fence that God never put there by saying, don't touch it. Eve was like the first Pharisee, wasn't she? Because God says, obey the Sabbath day, honor the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees said, okay, we're going to help you honor the Sabbath day. Don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't walk this far and don't lift this on the Sabbath day. And they added all these extra fences to help you not disobey the Sabbath command. That's essentially what Eve is doing here. She's being like a Pharisee. God said, don't eat it. And Eve said, let me put up another fence. Don't touch it. But in so doing, it makes God even appear a little bit even more strict, doesn't it? A little bit more, uh, more rules, more regulations. She's falling into the serpent's trap. Serpents wanting her to think that God is not good. And then the next thing that the serpent does is once he's created a seed of doubt, then he wants to create desire. And that desire is focused on the object, the temptation itself. Sin is not bad. What did God say? If you eat of the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And so what does the serpent do? He attacks that very aspect of what God said, the, the detrimental effects of sin, the outcome of sin. The serpent says, you will not surely die. So he takes away the bad effects of the sin. You're not going to die. And then he twists it around and even adds some positive aspects to the sin. You're not going to die. In fact, God knows that if you eat it, you will be as God's knowing good and evil. So he takes away the negative aspects of it and says, here are actually some positive aspects of it. So he wants to shed a whole different light on the sin act itself, that it's not bad for you. It's not going to hurt you. It's actually good for you and it will help you. So sin is not bad. Sin is good. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, 
For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And she falls into the trap, doesn't she? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And so he got her to doubt God, the goodness of God. Then he got her to look at the positive aspects of this action, of going against God's stated command. So first, don't listen to God. He doesn't have your full interest in mind. In fact, look at this. Look at what you could potentially have that God said you couldn't have. And she looks, she sees, and now she starts to look at it through her own understanding, doesn't she? Not God's understanding, but her own understanding. And she's, from her perspective, it looks good. It looks desirable. Nothing wrong with it. Doesn't see any poison in it. Nothing going to kill me. And she eats it. He says, the serpent's goal is for humanity to be remade in his image and imitate him. We're made in the image of God and we're supposed to imitate him. But, the, but Satan wants us to imitate him and to be remade in his image. Every failed spiritual test can be traced to our tacit agreement with him and these two lies. What two lies? God's not good. Sin's not bad. Go ahead, he says, you will like it. Rest in your own understanding. Look at the evidence. God is not that good and sin is not that bad. To put it bluntly, God is not good, but sin is good. Essentially, that's what we're agreeing with every time we sin. Every time we sin, we're agreeing with that lie. God doesn't know what he's t- talking about. He's not good. And there's really nothing wrong with this sin. This sin is good. We're agreeing to that lie. He wants us to be made, remade in his image and follow his example to imitate him. And here's the thing. We know that this is Satan's strategy, don't we? We know this. We're, we're all Christians in here. We've been in church most of our lives, people in this room. We know that this is Satan's strategy, but yet we're still vulnerable, aren't we? We're still vulnerable. We still fall for this in our own minds. And, and here's the thing that happens. Adam and Eve, they fell for this in a perfect state didn't they? They weren't depressed. Their body wasn't hurting. They didn't just get laid off from their job. They didn't have anything bad happening to them in their life and they still fell for it. Now compound that with the fact that we have all kinds of things happening in our lives that get us down, discouraged. And sometimes we're looking for an out. We're looking for a release. We're looking for an escape. And the the serpent says, here's one. And we fall for it. We're vulnerable to it. And so we can say we have discernment, but sometimes the discernment that we had yesterday dissolves into desire because of how we're feeling today. So Satan's schemes, God's not good, sin's not bad. And then his last step, once we fall into his trap, is to tell us that we are doomed, we're lost, creating despair in us. 
He says, when we follow him into disobedience, Satan will add one final strategy. You are now irredeemably bad and God could never forgive or love you. Now you're, now you're damaged goods. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. He wants you to be broken. And he wants to remind you that you're broken. You want to read a good strategy of, or a good example of how Satan's strategy works in this area? Read Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3 is a vision that the prophet Zechariah has. And in this vision, there is a high priest of God, Joshua the high priest. He's standing before God. And here comes Satan in a courtroom and says, this guy's guilty. This guy is guilty. Look at his filthy robes. He is sinful. He is disgusting. He is not worthy to be a priest of yours. That's Satan's strategy. The word Satan means accuser. Accuser. Like a prosecuting attorney. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Here's all the evidence. Guilty. You're lost. But God in grace says, no, you're not irredeemably lost, right? Praise God for that. You're not irredeemably lost. You're not fully broken. You're not fully gone. And so God reminds us of hope. One of the things he says in this chapter, he says that shame, when we fall into this trap of the devil and he says, you're irredeemably gone, then what happens is shame replaces communion and fellowship and everything is injected with hopelessness. We're fooled into thinking that we can never regain what's been lost. But in Christ, we can be made new again, can't we? In Christ, we can be made new again. And this priesthood that God designed for us to have can be redeemed, remade after the image of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus through his work for us. But Satan wants us to think that we're gone, that we're lost. And one of, the, one of his purposes in this chapter on the intruder, Satan, is he wants us to remember that we need to have discernment and that we have, we have a foe. We have an enemy who is lurking about. And as a priest of God, we need to protect our temple. He says, before priests could protect the holiness of the garden temple, they first had to learn to protect their own hearts. So we have to be discerning between right and wrong, and we have to protect our hearts from the tempter who's going to try to push us away from the goodness of God and draw us to the enticeability of sin. So we need to learn to protect our own hearts. As I was thinking about chapter four and five, just if I could kind of boil down these two chapters, I would say these two statements. That drawing near to God as his holy priests requires moral discernment. Trusting in and obeying God's commands. That means just humbly accepting what God says is right. And saying yes to what God says yes to. And saying no to what God says no to. There's a humility, there's a trust in that, even if we don't fully understand. And that, when we exercise that moral discernment and follow 
God's path, we draw near, don't we? We draw near. And then also drawing near to God as his holy priests requires guarding our hearts against Satan's schemes. That's how I would boil down chapters four and five. Moral discernment, drawing near to God and humbly trusting his commands and then also being on guard to protect our hearts from that which would uh, steer us away from the love of God, from the goodness of God and get us to turn our love and put our affection on other things in this world. So guarding our hearts. Well, let's, let's bow in prayer together. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to um, just think about the way that you have made us in your image to, uh, to be able to think your thoughts after you, uh, to pattern our thoughts and attitudes and actions uh, after what you have revealed to us, how you have built into us the ability to discern between what is right and what is wrong and how you've called us to exercise that discernment, to put it into action. And as we, Father, seek to obey your commands, uh, we draw near to you and you have promised to draw near to us. Lord, guard us as your children, guard us from the tempter and his schemes, the deceitfulness of sin. And uh, Father, may we uh, seek to guard our hearts from that deceitfulness of sin. Lord, bless your people and thank you for this study. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.